Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording May 13th, 2022, it's the fourth in our series on digitizing the defense in Canada. And in this episode, we're speaking with Joe Armstrong and Christopher Coates, respectively, Vice President, Single Synthetic Environments and Immersive Technologies, and Director, Single Synthetic Environments and Military Applications at CIE. This episode was made possible thanks to the support of our strategic sponsors, Lockheed Martin Canada, General Dynamics, Irving Shipbuilding, and Davies Shipyard, and the series title sponsor, Amazon Web Services and CIE, as well as Accenture. Christopher, Joe, uh, welcome. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks so much, David. Happy to be here. So let's, let's start the discussion. Uh, I think what you folks can offer is a little bit unique from some of the other conversations we've had. Um, CAE itself has been on a digitization journey uh, in the recent years. Um, let's start us off by talking about some of that challenge. What was the driving imperative for the company to make that shift itself? Uh, and what are some of the, the observations that you've drawn from that experience that we can kind of weave into the rest of the conversation today? Sure. Thanks, David. It's kind of interesting time for everybody, I think. And, you know, if we look back at the last two to three years, we're probably in the most interesting of times in the last number of decades. And so I think the experience that we at CAE have had and the impetus to try and drive us towards, you know, a digitization and high tech transformation has um, really been, you know, pushed by the same things that everybody around us is experiencing. Um, you know, when I look at kind of the four major driver points, I mean, we have everything from, you know, the impact of global events, whether or not that's climate change, whether or not that's the situation in Ukraine, but general sort of world instability and unpredictability, I would argue. Um, the second being that, you know, the advance of technology in general, um, whether or not that's access to data and information, or it's actually the advance of technology itself, and typically driven through things like software evolution, um, is putting us in a position where it's like really hard to figure out, you know, what do we do with all this stuff? How do we actually interpret data? What tools do I actually need to transform my organization and do things differently? Um, I think when you look at those two factors, it puts us in, a, again, a really interesting position because you know, you have all this unpredictability, you have this massive advance of technology and access to technology, and yet the pace of decision making is also increasing. In other words, the speed that we have to try and navigate all of this spectrum is uh, going much faster than we've ever seen before. It's almost like, you know, you've got Moore's law on decision making that's sort of overlaying, you know, the environment that we've got around us. And so what does that do? It puts anybody who's in a decision making position, whether or not you're an executive in the government and in industry or wherever, into a position where, you know, the situation and the environment is getting complex, right? And it's not easy to figure out, well, where do we go um, to prepare ourselves for the future? And I think the final thing, you know, is a recognition that, you know, unlike even five years ago, where I think many industry members and, and industry in general, especially in the aerospace and defense sector, were really driving what I would call more proprietary solutions. In other words, the belief that, you know, me as a company, I've got a piece of tech and it's better than everybody else's. And so I'm going to try and sell it. And that's what I'm going to push. And that's how I'm going to create my brand reputation. But to deal with those other three elements, right, the sort of impact of global uncertainty, the speed of technology advancement, the speed of decision making is putting us all in a position where you recognize, well, that just doesn't fly anymore, right? You can get yourself so committed on one particular aspect of technology or one product to the exclusion of everything else around you, if you ever stand a chance at um, trying to address those first three sort of verticals, right? Vertical problems. And so for us as a company, you know, and this really started a little bit before 
you know, the pandemic, but certainly the pandemic and the impact that it had on our business, whether or not it was on the civil side, the defense side, or healthcare side, you know, it put us in a position where all of a sudden we were faced with um, many different factors that were really hard to predict again, meeting that first imperative, right? And obviously we had, well, nobody comes to work, you know, and we have a solid manufacturing part of our business. That meant, how do you get people into the office to actually do manufacturing? Um, we have a huge amount of engineers and software development around the world, and all of a sudden, you know, nobody can go to the office. So you have to start digitizing your entire workforce and the infrastructure just to actually execute your normal regular business um, in a way that now supports an environment and an operating environment that's completely different than it was, and in that time, literally a month before, right? So um, when we started looking at the future for CAE and um, an understanding of, wow, you know, this is probably gonna become more of the norm. Right. All of those things are not going away that I mentioned previously. And for us to be prepared for the future means that as an organization writ large, we have to be far better prepared to be highly agile so that we can address any of those risks or any of those events that happen that are really outside of our control in a way that doesn't impair the ability for us to deliver our mission. Right, which is delivering products and services to clients around the world. And so that really is what drove our embarking on you know, a high tech and digital transformation. Um, and we can get into you know, a lot of the details around that, but through that journey, which is still ongoing today, and this is not something that's over in a couple of months or six months from now, um, we've encountered a lot of things that you wouldn't have known about unless you would actually try the journey yourself. Um, because part of these journeys is about trying stuff differently. Right. And in many cases, the things you try don't work. Right. And you have to be able to sort of step back from it and go, well, why didn't it work this time? You know, it sounded like it worked or that software looked like it would do the business. But at the end of the day, it actually didn't. Right. So that idea of being highly agile, the ability to try things and fail um, and to try and keep driving forward despite failures or challenges, I think becomes a key tenant of any organization that's trying to do any kind of digital transformation. And as you're thinking about your, your uh, path forward, um, so I, I think, you know, no surprise has been particularly kind of challenging environment for people in the aerospace sector, which is a lot of, of what you folks do. How, how much does that kind of wider ecosystem of digital modernization across the different industry sectors you work in uh, or, or wider societally in terms of your engagement of employees? And I'm sure you're facing sort of the similar pressures on, on people that want to keep working from home uh, to various degrees or, or move to a hybrid model. What's kind of the, the balance between what the, the company and the organization wants to do for its own sake of modernization versus some of those other kind of contextual factors of the, of the ecosystem in which you live and work? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, it's a complete blend now. You know, there, there is no ability for an organization to be successful if you try and fully contain, you know, your previous operating model without recognizing that the environment in which you're operating, and that includes, uh, you know, com the competitive environment includes the market that you're actually moving yourself towards, uh, all those other environmental factors we talked about, nothing is in isolation anymore, right? And, you know, one of the things certainly for us is recognizing that as an aerospace and defense organization who, you know, we had 70 plus years of, of building this company, um, you know, a lot of that legacy operation model right? Just doesn't apply anymore. It just fundamentally doesn't apply. And so you have to be able to get in your mind that, you know, all of the previous legacy you've built, right, in any kind of organization um, needs to be evaluated for its, you know, fit for purpose in the environment that we're operating in today, right? And that basically puts you in a position where nothing is sacred anymore, 
right? If you want to be successful in a transformation, you have to be willing to throw out all of your premises and all of your assumptions about the past and how things and why things worked before and recognize that, you know, 90% of those might not be valid anymore. And for you to be able to adapt yourself um, means that you have to be willing to take through and push through some of those really hard points of transition. So Christopher, I ask you, so you, you've had exposure to industry now, but you, you had a long career in the Canadian forces, um, finishing off uh, uh, with some time, significant time at uh, NORAD and Northcom headquarters in Colorado Springs in particular towards the end of your career. I guess, reflecting now that you've seen the exposure on, on the industry side, I guess, how would you kind of situate if you're reflecting what you've seen now with CAE back to uh, the imperative at defense uh, with NORAD Northcom and, and in our binational defense uh, relationship, what do you see as the drivers for digitization within the, the government of Canada uh, defense CAF context? Yeah, so I mean, I, I could use a couple of examples out of my, my time at, at NORAD uh, to illustrate that, uh, Dave, but uh, it fundamentally comes down to those same things that, that Joe was just describing, at least the first two, the, the complexity and the pace of decision-making. Um, and, so while those are true for industry, they were also true inside uh, the defense enterprise. Um, we would see in Canada First Defense Strategy and U.S. Strategy, of course, other drivers, geopolitical drivers. Those are important, can't be ignored, but um, I, I think um, the examples I'll, I'll provide you um, illustrate or link back to those things that, that uh, Joe just described. And the first example would be perhaps the... Um, uh, what we were facing in terms of advancing Russian technology and their ability to launch uh, um, cruise missiles uh, towards North America that, that, that sort of got through the gaps in the radar system. They, they were really tough uh, to uh, detect by our um, existing North Warning system. The, uh, that was one of the drivers, the, the increasing traffic uh, and, and some other factors in uh, the domestic airspace were also um, on our minds and how can we better do uh, this? How can we better uh, assess, surveil, report, identify anomalies in, in the airspace? Um, and we weren't gonna be able to replace all the radars in North America overnight, but we questioned whether or not it'd be possible to apply a digital solution to this. Is there a way to use modern technologies against this problem? And you can read about it in the, uh, in the open press now that we created a program that we call Pathfinder, where we worked really closely with industry to very rapidly turn um, some technology, uh, AI and ML-based uh, technology, so artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, to better process the kinds of signals that were being generated by our legacy radars and had significant effect uh, for us. So that was a huge driver to apply digital technologies and, and sort of 21st uh, century thinking to how we solved the problem. We weren't able to use normal procurement for that either. So we were largely using the Defense Innovation Unit, um, sort of an arm of US DOD that, that, uh, that accelerates the innovation procurement cycle to allow that to occur. Um, and, and so that's what we saw at the time, NORAD to be able to give you a good update on where they are with it today. Um, the other example I'd bring up was, although I was with NORAD, of course, the headquarters is in Colorado Springs and the commander is double-hatted as the commander of NORTHCOM. And in the spring of 2020, as COVID hit, Northcom had the, the job of defense support to civil authorities and how was the US military going to assist all of the, the hospitals that were becoming overwhelmed uh, with COVID uh, patients. Um, and the problem was intractable. Uh, the, the, the 50 states and the 
multiple FEMA regions and all of the federated and dispersed pipe, you know, stovepiped hospital organizations that don't transfer information between one another. And so the commander brought in big tech, Apple and others uh, into assist in, uh, in solving this problem. We're very, very uh, quickly created an innovative solution um, using iPads and, and iPhones uh, to drive technology to provide the, the commander an integrated understanding of what was happening in all the hospitals around the US. So I think we had a better picture um, there than, than perhaps many other organizations will know that uh, there was a request from the White House for us to share the technology that we generated there to allow them to get a better picture of what was going on domestically. So, uh, Christopher, you uh, mentioned uh, changes to procurement, uh, adapting basically the, the relationship between uh, the NORAD framework and, and industrial partners. Um, and uh, Christopher, to come back to you, I guess, you know, there's sort of the, uh, at times there's this bit of a vein that, you know, a government is, is process driven and bureaucratic uh, and, and has existing processes that, uh, you know, take time to adopt. I guess uh, in my limited exposure, uh, a lot of that exists in industry as well. You've got certain ways of dealing with uh, your different supplier base, um, engaging in them, you know, uh, not processed or bureaucracy free. Uh, I guess drawing from that a little bit, I mean, there's a transition that needs to happen uh, in government to make these adaptations, but uh, talk a little bit about some of the experiences CAE's had dealing with those same types of issues, entering into a different kind of a relationship uh, with people to help you on your, your digitization journey. Yeah, so I mean, I think I'll let, I'll let Joe talk about what's going on inside CAE, but I, I think what I'd say is that uh, your point about process being present in industry, just like it is in government, Absolutely, and and uh, I mean that was one of the things that I've learned is that um, it didn't get a whole lot uh, uh, different as I transitioned over to industry. There, there's still uh, it, it may be a little bit different, but but there's still a, a lot of a lot of process and and requirements to satisfy. Um, but I think what I'm seeing is that the same things that I saw that I'll say might have frustrated me as a senior military leader are still present in CAE. So this, this effort that, that Joe and, and I are part of inside CAE to, to do some, some work around some new high technology um, and, and provide that perhaps back to, uh, back to defense is frustrated by the culture that, that we've got as a large aerospace company. And, and, and Joe can expand on that. So I'm seeing the same thing. So those same frustrations in, in, that I saw in the military, the need to be able to adapt and move quickly to uh, make decisions at the speed of, of digital, not at the speed of legacy. Um, those are what I saw in, in defense. And, and, you know, so we're having to transform CAE, I guess, in a way along the same direction. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. Thanks, Christopher. Um, and and I, I would say, you know, when you look at why do you have a process, right? Why do you have process bureaucracy or governance and all of these words that we use to structure the way an organization operates? Well, typically you're doing it to drive a couple of things, right? One is accountability, right? Making sure that you're you're holding your organization accountable for, you know, expenditure of funds. Um, in the case of the government, obviously we're accountable to taxpayers, right? And we want to make sure that you're spending taxpayer money in an efficient, effective way um, and you're delivering to a mission outcome, right, ultimately. Um, an industry, it's actually the same thing, except instead of taxpayers, we have shareholders, certainly as a publicly traded company. And even if you're a private company, you have a shareholder who's the owner of the company, right? And in each case, if you're running a, a well-managed business, right, you want to hold yourself accountable. Now, in the aerospace and defense world, 
um, you know, certainly where I spent, you know, the last two decades of my career, um, you know, the one thing that's very similar across both industry and government is that uh, the majority of the way you set up relationships with what you call a supplier, right, is typically fairly rigorous, right? There's terms that are you know, used to try and drive value out of the relationship between yourself as a parent and, and, uh, and your child, which is the supplier. Um, there's structures around it to prevent or flow down, you know, contractual terms that stem from the government, pass through a prime contract or flow down into the supply chain. Um, and those things are, you know, certainly as you get bigger, become more and more standardized. And so, of course, like any organization, you become more and more bureaucratized. Now, one of the major things that we see as part of digitization is what happens when you actually move outside of the aerospace and defense sector. So if you look at where you know, the bulk of our technology investments are, they're in these areas like AI, machine learning, gaming, you know, working with other partners, Amazon, Microsoft, who are operating in a completely different space in the market that have a very different view on how do you actually generate partnerships, how do you generate a supply chain than you would in the traditional aerospace and defense sector. And I'll give you a, a really good example. I won't name specific organizations we're working with, but you know, the idea of moving away from a supply chain model into strategic alliances where you are working hand in hand with other organizations, whether or not there are industry organizations or government organizations to focus on creating an outcome that is, is uh, bigger than what you could ever achieve on your own. And entering into strategic alliances of that nature create very different models on how you actually behave. It creates different expectations and what you expect in terms of delivery from that strategic alliance partner. It creates different contractual structures because you're now holding yourselves mutually accountable to achieve an actual outcome at the end of the day. And it drives the idea of being flexible enough to understand that as you enter into a venture, right? And a venture that is by nature transformative, right? You're allowing yourself again, like my earlier comment to fail, right? And not to treat failure as punishment, right? Or something that has to be penalized through LDs and all of the other traditional ways that we actually implement structures inside contracts, but to realize that the journey of exploration is, is going to be an education, right? And the best way to learn, I mean, this goes back to, you know, us being kids in school is that it's actually okay to fail. Right? And being able to create relationships in the ecosystem of partners and the ecosystem in which you're working with. Again, it doesn't matter if you're industry or government. And you know, driving that understanding that failing is okay, that agility is paramount, that an alliance is much better than a supplier relationship is really in my mind, you know, the wave of the future. And as you move into these other areas, right? So you're stepping outside of aerospace and defense traditional you know, environments to see capabilities that stem from other markets, right? The um, impact on how you even speak, right? The semantics that you use to communicate things like what is the outcome you're looking for? Um, you'll find there's often a broad gulf and you have to be able to get everybody on the same terminology to even understand how to communicate in a world that's becoming digitized. Because to an aerospace and defense guy, you know, when I say high tech, that probably means something fundamentally different to me than a small Silicon Valley enterprise that started up by you know, five guys in their garage and is now 100 people that's been built off venture capitalists, right, who have been investing in that company and are massively aggressive about growing their market. We're talking two different worlds here, but now we're seeing convergence across all of them. So Joe, as you're thinking about, uh, CAE's got long experience dealing with the government of Canada and other, other governments. Um, are there one or two kind of key lessons that you would draw from your experience kind of 
reorient the way to move to that uh, strategic alliance, you called it, um, various discussions in the, kind of in the digital space about the need for, for partnership, um, you know, moving, introducing more agility into in some of those relationships. If you're thinking about the, the parallels between your experience in the, in the corporate world and what government uh, needs to uh, move to, to adjust better to the current reality, are there one or two kind of key lessons that you would take from that? You, you mentioned terminology, but are there other, other aspects? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and if I look around the world, right, in, in the initiatives that we're doing, we obviously put a global head on. So we're not just focused in one country, but we really look at the whole ecosystem around us, around the planet in which we do business. Um, there, there are, I think, a few tenants that generally lead to better success um, than others. And, you know, certainly one of them uh, is creating a contractual environment, right, a relationship environment that um, isn't fundamentally based on hard requirements but is actually based on achieving an outcome, right? And, you know, one of the challenges that we see, again, with the acquisition of technology, capital assets, et cetera, is typically we're used to actually specifying a hard requirement. It's really hard to specify a hard requirement when the thing you're trying to buy doesn't exist yet, right? And so when you're entering into any kind of venture where you're looking to, again, transform, and typically, you know, in this space, we're talking about transforming technology to meet an end use of some kind, right? You have to be able to create an environment whereby you're not always driving after that hard requirement, but you're trying to evaluate, you know, how do you set and measure success through an outcome, right? And that outcome has to be a, a mutual outcome that's created by the ecosystem of partners and, and um, you know, alliances, et cetera, that you establish. You know, the best programs that we've seen that do that, and I, I won't be able to name all of them, but I'll just give you an idea as to their flavor, was when organizations made a realization that, wait, I've been spending a huge amount of money on a proprietary solution, right, from one particular company, and now I'm pigeonholed into that solution forever, because I've invested tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in that solution. But when they looked at the future, they said, well, that's really not what the wave of the future is. So let's look at creating outcomes that we want to achieve and establish contractual environments that allow uh, relationship and partnership between industry and government to actually evaluate technical solutions through the life of the program and to be able to introduce those technical solutions as an evolutionary thing. So the idea that you're never really playing a game of, I wanna have that as the thing I get delivered at the end, you're playing the game of how do I maximize the outcome I'm trying to achieve, right? And so when I even look back in a, into some of uh, Canadian history, you know, back when I first started my career, so this would have been 1999, sort of 2000, um, you know, Canada and DRDC had technology demonstration programs or TDPs. And those models were, I always found very interesting because they allowed through incremental partnership development, right? Setting yourself an objective that again was outcome-based, right? And allowing that partnership to actually test and evaluate through many iterative design evolutions, the concepts that underpin the achievement of that outcome, right? In a way that actually then led into being able to better define a solution that you would actually want to procure in the future, right? And there was no um, you know, requirement for an end delivery. In other words, I didn't have to achieve a certain level of criteria to be able to be successful. It was actually all driven off of learning and educating yourselves about how do you combine technology, products, systems, et cetera, to achieve the best possible outcome that you can. Where we see that not work again is when you see you know, things that are very, very rigid in the requirement where the language itself on a contract, and by the way, this applies to industry as well, right? Is 
our supply chain, you know, if we do that to our suppliers in cases like this, it causes the same problems as what happens when you have industry working with government. When you're that rigid, it becomes almost impossible to innovate. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by the men and women of the Halifax Shipyard. For 112 years, the Royal Canadian Navy has worked closely with allied nations around the globe. During the Battle of the Atlantic, Canada's Navy stood shoulder to shoulder with our allies. Many of the ships that Canada put to sea in World War II were built in Canada. That tradition lives on today in Halifax. Today, the Halifax Shipyard is one of the largest and most modern indoor shipbuilding facilities in North America. In Halifax, Canada's National Shipbuilder is building state-of-the-art ships for Canada's Navy and Coast Guard fleets and is increasing Canada's GDP by billions of dollars. Over 3,000 shipbuilders will build the new Canadian surface combatant for Canada at the Halifax Shipyard. The new CSC will be Canada's most advanced ship ever built and is the superior choice to protect and support Canadian sailors. The Royal Canadian Navy has always stood up for Canada's interests and stood with our allies to secure them. The CSC ensures our Navy has the tools it needs to take that legacy into the future. Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Davy Shipyard. Founded in 1825, Davy is a premier builder of advanced specialized icebreakers and many other ships for the Government of Canada and the private sector. As Canada's longest established, largest and highest capacity shipbuilder, Davy has delivered many of the most pioneering vessels ever built in Canada. Davy generates thousands of good jobs and billions of dollars for Canada's economy. Through its work, Davy is helping to build a sustainable marine industry, combat climate change, defend sovereignty, support trade, generate exports, and unleash the potential of the communities it serves. Just to tease this out, because I know that this is a, a kind of a core issue about switching that mindset, focusing on outcome. And if you juxtapose that uh, against your previous comments about basically having to, inter- to, to accept a certain level of failure on the journey, I, I mean, is a, is a key kind of uh, part of making that transition, having senior leadership be comfortable about the, the potential for failure as you're going to an outcome? Because if you're defining requirements, you can deliver to a, a requirement. Um, that's more of a binary pass-fail thing. If you've got softer outcome definitions, particularly if you're looking at you know, really cutting edge or nascent technology, it's, it, it's tougher to potentially evaluate success. So is it, is it more about how you got senior, senior leadership or whoever the an individual initiative is ultimately accountable to? In your case, you've got uh, you know, uh, corporate uh, folks, shareholders, in a government's case, the, the cabinet fundamentally taxpayers like what's the is it a trust that that enables that or, or just tease that out a little bit more sure so uh, you know trust is um i think it's a great way to actually start this conversation because trust is typically based on what right trust is typically based on the belief that you know the person or the organizations groups that you're working with are transparent and are able to you know provide you insight into how things are progressing in whatever it is right i don't care if it's another organization where you have to trust them they have transparency you know they're going to deliver what they need to deliver to you um, if you have opaqueness then typically you generate mistrust right so the education of senior leaders in how to generate trust on innovation Um, is driven by um, a carefully select uh, set of KPIs and measures that are outcome focused. So instead of saying I've achieved the requirement, say that I've actually achieved the capability to do X, Y, or Z. And and I'll give you you some generic examples. Um, You know, if we're doing incubation, for example, so the idea, and this is actually a little bit like the ideas program, at least, you know, for the first couple of stages where you say, I'm going to throw a group, a bunch of money, small stuff, you know, couple hundred thousand, maybe a million bucks. I want them to try something. And at the end of them trying that thing, 
I want to get an understanding as an investor as to how successful were they. But because it's incubation, I can't measure that success on a completed product that meets a hard set of requirements, right? I'm going to have to measure that success on what was it capable of achieving with that investment that justifies whether or not I want to continue investing to mature it a little more to a next phase and measure again what outcome is it actually able to or capable of achieving, right? And in the context of a business, if I'm looking at incubation or innovation inside a business, you know, what I want to see from folks is saying, look, did you spend time with a customer? Did you understand what their problem was? Not their requirement, their problems were that can be solved by introducing a new approach, a new technology, a new product. And what is the feedback that I get out of the relationship between end users, right? The, the group that's trying to develop an innovative solution and me as an investor that wants to be able to track that outcome. Right. And as you unfold and innovate that in the future, you know, you start creating again different, more transparent measures, KPIs, et cetera, that provide insight into how this thing is, whatever you're investing in, is actually performing again against criteria that you set that are outcome focused. So it's not, and, and I think this is something that people often confuse, right? Innovation doesn't mean that you're not paying attention, right? Innovation doesn't mean throwing a bunch of money and putting people in a shed and letting them do whatever they want and then out comes a product, right? Innovation means understanding what you're trying to achieve through innovation, measuring it accordingly. And it's through that measurement that actually generates trust because it creates visibility on progress. So there's a couple of things in there uh, that, that you touched on. So one was the, the digital literacy piece. So you mentioned, yeah, you know, CIE is an older company, lots of different lines of business. Um, as you're looking to do what you're doing in the, in the digital space, you can touch a little bit about how, what's been the process about trying to get the, the rest of the, the organization, the, the leadership more digitally smart and, and how, what that looks like in terms of how you can you do your um, the work that you're doing, and then the other piece there you touched on oh, different different forums for interacting with government. Um, and I'm going to ask uh, Christopher to add to this in a minute. But are there particular models that you've, you've seen um, around the world that are potentially uh, uh, look worth looking at in Canada about how government and industry can get together in a collaborative framework before anybody's looking to particularly buy any particular thing to get a better sense of sort of what the art of the possible is to understand the problem uh, and look at potential solutions that you can then kind of evolve in, into a way of actually addressing them. Sure. So yeah, there's a bunch of things you asked there, David. So I'll try and address each one. Um, I'll, I'll talk about the first, which is, um, you know, getting executive buy-in, right? And executive buy-in, I think, comes through education and not, um, again, it's all about change management really at the end of the day. So how do you educate and expose, you know, leadership to the different criteria that are gonna be replacing the old criteria you use to judge success, right? And there's a bit of terminology in there, there's semantics, but there's also an understanding of how to articulate what measures you're using, right? That'll actually secure, you know, a likelihood of success, right? And also secures um, an ability to fail early so that you're not spending huge amounts of money and investment on something that fundamentally isn't going to work at the end of the day. So again, that speaks to building trust with executives, getting them on the same page semantically to understand the terminology of what you're trying to do, and then be able to, to um, you know, demonstrate through, again, objective measures, how you're going to measure things to, to deal with, you know, the probabilities of 
success or failure. When I look at good models, um, you know, certainly looking into the U.S. and some of the more strategic programs that they're running in the U.S., um, you can look um, at SOCOM, in, in fact, so Special Operations Command and a program called MCS COP. There's information that's publicly available, so I'll stay at that level. But SOCOM had a, um, you know, a challenge of building a very integrated set of technologies to answer things like situational awareness, command and control, course of action analysis, et cetera. But instead of, again, going out and buying you know, specific technologies and then trying to implement those as a solution, they worked hand in glove with industry over many years to try different things through a successive set of different kinds of procurements and contracts that ultimately led into more of an evolutionary integration program that allowed industry and government together to evaluate technology in the ecosystem and integrate those pieces of technology and try them right, as they're evolving their system. And so it was an understanding that the system that you're generating is an evolutionary thing. It's never going to be static anymore. You're not buying a fixed asset that, you know, is going to look the same today as it does tomorrow, but something that's evolving over time. And so there's a lot of interesting work that's being done, you know, particularly in some of those more special ops areas um, in the U.S. where I think there's lessons that we could be learned. Um, in Australia is another good example. Um, so Australia has, uh, and Christopher may be able to recall the name of the program, it's escaped my memory at the moment, but uh, things that look a little more like the technology demonstration programs we had, you know, earlier back in the early 2000s, that again, we're seeking, um, seeking industry to provide ideas, um, but substantial enough funding at the beginning so that you could really try and prototype things to a level where it could demonstrate, you know, what kind of capability it could generate, but then creating a very strong relationship, again, between, you know, defense as an end user and the companies that were doing that innovation, again, to make sure that what is being innovated is actually meeting operational, operational needs and operational problems. Um, I can also point to, uh, you know, NATO is another very good example. So ACT uh, and uh, SACT um, have done a number of industry collaboration activities where they're really seeking input from industry and open forums to share ideas about technology, the evolution of technology, the way to set up procurements of that technology and those, and those kinds of products that I think are very refreshing, right? They're very open. And in fact, what it, one of the interesting things that it does is it actually puts industry in forums where industry can learn about each other, especially when you're bringing in industry from multiple different market segments into an environment that's actually focused on NATO's needs and problems NATO's, NATO has, so that industry can start to build a better understanding of how integrated technology can solve some very complex problems. Christopher, I don't know if you wanna to add to that. Yeah, I think, uh, Joe, you're referring to the Australian Defense Innovation Hub. Um, you know, there are a couple of programs that are out there, I'll say, um, and that seem to be a bit ideas-like, and maybe ideas with sort of the first uh, program of its type, and, and these others are, I would say, doing a better job in the digitalization uh, journey. Um, so Defense Innovation Hub, like you mentioned, Joe, does more than, than ideas uh, has done, certainly with respect to digitalization, I would say, and they do take an idea from, from the concept to the prototype all the way up through production. The same thing is existing in NATO through their innovation uh, arms that, that NATO's implemented. And there's Diana, the Defense Innovation Accelerator for North America. And they're taking stuff from TRL 1 and 4 all the way up to TRL 9, all the way through production. Now, Dave, somebody might say, well, that is just ideas, but it, it's more, well, I don't know. From where I'm sitting now inside uh, CAE, we're seeing a lot of activity that 
touching us in the digital sphere from these other organizations around the world, whether that's Defense Innovation Hub Australia, whether that's Diana and, and ACT. ACT is on a, a really aggressive cycle to get digital in front of leaders, to get digital in front of NATO and different parts of NATO. But I'm not seeing that from ideas. Um, and and you know, maybe, uh, maybe that's just an indication that their attention has been focused elsewhere. Um, and so uh, there's probably opportunity there to uh, rebrand, to re-energize the ideas program around the digital journey and use it to help bring digital back in front of different Canadian military organizations and different leaders create those partnerships that, that Joe was just um, explaining earlier. Christopher, just ask you to um, if you reflect on kind of your, your last uh, two sets of jobs. Uh, was there Were there things that uh, NORAD Northcom was doing in particular to try and uh, educate uh, senior leaders uh, on the digital environment that you thought uh, maybe weren't occurring uh, in Canada when you came back to CJOC? So were there anything in particular that the command in Colorado Springs was doing uh, to get its head around this issue that um, the CAF or D&D here uh, might think about uh, uh, trying to, to incorporate it as a way to make sure the organization writ large uh, has a better grip on these sets of issues? Yes, I, I think what I saw in the US and Canada that was the same was that there is a, a real passion for the mission and the desire to improve things, um, that a recognition that uh, digital would be a, a good part of that. Um, uh, but what was happening in the States was that there was a capacity to actually pursue those good ideas. Um, and there were, there were outlets for that uh, that were accessible to the different organizations. And it might be a matter of scale. It might be just the fact that um, U.S. VOD has, has got such an enormous capacity and budget um, that to carve out uh, tens of millions of dollars to pursue uh, digital ideas with some degree of risk around them um, was easier in that setting. Um, and, and so, I mean, it might not scale really well. So what would be a, a small fraction of a percent in, in U.S. DOD, um, you still require that same kind of level of investment to do to do those fundamental things in Canada, but it, it constitutes such a, a large percentage of the, the envelope that it, you know, we're, we're managing risk differently. Um, but I would say that there's a lot, a lot more similarities than differences and it might just come down to that. When, when you're thinking about uh, the transition, uh, obviously the, the human capital, the, the labor pool uh, to do this uh, is a big component. Um, just watching the macroeconomic indicators, uh, seems like a, it's a pretty good time to not actually have a job or be looking for a new one at the moment. Uh, if you're an employee, potential employee, but uh, for companies like yourselves that are looking at this issue, as again, thinking about uh, what you're doing, what the government of Canada, what defense, what the CAF might be doing as part of a wider ecosystem of digital transformation. Um, there's lots of people with skill sets that are going to be pretty popular uh, at the moment and increasingly so in the future. Um, talk a little bit about some of the, the challenges about tapping into uh, uh, that labor pool, cultivating it, keeping those people, uh, and what you're, the way that you're approaching that um, and some suggestions about uh, how to do that best going forward. Yeah, David, that's a, it's an excellent question and a really thorny one. And, I, you know, I like to look at it and say, fortunately, CAE is not, you know, alone in the problem of talent and labor. Unfortunately, CAE is not alone in the problem of talent and labor, right? Because this is really an endemic, you know, a really endemic problem. And one of the, um, and again, I think this is a sign of, you know, what is actually happening societally, 
as skills are starting to be valued differently. And if I look at, you know, our labor pool, you know, especially on our engineering talent, you know, typically, you know, as a company, we were sort of competing with other aerospace and defense companies for talent, right? And so when you do things like standardized salaries and compensation packages and things like this, your baseline is typically done in the industry set that you work in, right? Now what's happening is that industry set has drastically shifted. And so this impetus, again, to try and drive transformation to become digital, right, is now putting all the organizations who are trying to do that transformation now at the level of true, you know, what you call um, your legacy high-tech companies. And even the more modern high-tech companies, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, et cetera, that operate in a completely different environment, right? And the challenge that, you know, we face is... Um, and it's the same challenge that everybody faces is, is the comp packages are drastically different now. So to be able to retain talent, even a young engineer, and I'll, I'll give sort of anecdotal information, you know, a young engineer coming out of high, you know, coming out of university with an undergrad degree, you know, if they get the right job with Amazon, out of the gate, they're making 225,000 a year. Right. You can do a product manager role, which in aerospace and defense might have been sort of 150K, 170K a year job. That's a 400K a year job. Right? So if you want high talent, then being able to try and create um, a changes in compensation structures, that's obviously important. But I don't think any of us, including governments, necessarily have the deep pockets that some of these other trillion dollar valued you know, market equity companies actually hold to be able to drive compensation to be competitive. So you have to do an alternative to that, which is to create very compelling visions about you know, the contributions of your employees to something that is evolutionary. Why? Because, you know, kids that are coming out and shit, even me, you know, I'm 48. I still like to think, you know, that I have enough legs in my career to do things that are fairly advanced and do high tech stuff. Um, you need to have that compelling vision that gives people not just a short term roadmap of things, but a journey, right, that's tied to a career and a career aspiration as part of your organization. If you try and do a battle against comp structures, you'll lose every single time because none of us can really afford, you know, many of the salaries and the compensation structures that are actually being offered to talent today. And so, you know, I think there's a, there has to be adjustment on comp. There has to be new looks at the way, you know, you're providing as an industry. I mean, you provide base salary packages, you provide, you know, bonus structures, you provide stock structures if you're a publicly traded company, you know, um, you have to start looking at all of this differently, right? Certainly flexibility is a huge one, right? And I think it was already starting with the younger generation coming out of a, you know, a world where they grew up, where everything was online, right? They could talk to their friend no matter where they were in the world. They could play a video game and be connected to somebody in South Africa right now, right? And actually see an avatar of them and have a conversation with them as if they're sitting beside you. The workforce is now expecting that. Right? Obviously, it's much more difficult in manufacturing industries where you're, you're physically having to work with goods and materials. But in anything that's a, um, you know, a digital industry, the whole expectation now is I should be able to work wherever I want. Right? And that has lots of implications for things like cybersecurity. Right? How do you work on classified and, and above programs so that you can ensure data integrity? Um, but all of these things have to be taken into account to address you know, the labor issue that we're seeing. And you know, the unfortunate thing is we're not, uh, we're not spitting out enough students in STEM fast enough to be able to meet the demands of these industries.
Joe, Christopher, uh, thank you so much uh, uh, for signing in uh, on this beautiful morning. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaai.ca slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed. <laughs>